Early in 2020, SolarWinds, a major U.S. information technologi technology firm, pardon me, was the subject of a cyber attack, and that attack went undetected for months. Foreign hackers, believed to be from Russia, were able to use that hack to spy on private companies, the U.S. government, and, according to the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity, a variety of organizations in Canada were hit, too. And that hack has been behind an escalation in diplomatic tensions between Washington and Moscow. In her new book, This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends, Nicole Perlroth digs into cyber attacks and the cyber weapon arms race that's currently underway in the world. She writes about an underground world of hackers uncovering vulnerabilities and then selling them to the highest bidder. Nicole Perlroth is a reporter at the New York Times specializing in cybersecurity and joins me on the program. Welcome. Alan, thanks for having me. Nicole, your book has introduced me to a world that I knew precisely nothing about, where hackers search for something called zero days. Can you tell me a little bit about what does that mean and why are zero days so sought after? So I promise this is the most technical thing I'll have to explain to your <laughs> listeners today, but a zero day is at its most basic level, an unknown flaw in some code. So if I'm a hacker and I find a flaw in your iPhone iOS mobile software, I could potentially write a program to exploit it to read your text messages, track your location, turn on your video or audio without you knowing, track your contacts. And so that is of immense value to spy agencies and potentially cyber criminals too who would like to sell it on the dark web. But there is a growing market among nation states for these zero days. Nation states and their brokers will pay hackers as much as $3 million for that zero day exploit I just described just to get into your iPhone remotely. And so I really wrote this book about the market for those zero days and where this was all headed. Now, was it a zero-day attack or a zero-day that led to the solar winds hack? You know, it's one of the great mysteries of the solar winds hack. We're still learning. It was, we discovered it some five or six months ago, but we're still um, questioning how they actually got into solar winds. Now, in my reporting, we've learned just how mediocre, um, to use a kind word, security actually was, the password to the software update mechanism to update their customer software, which is how Russian hackers got into U.S. federal agencies and several companies and organizations in Canada was SolarWinds123. So they didn't need to use zero day to get into SolarWinds. That was what we're learning. But it's, it's entirely possible. It's just, this was a very sophisticated attack, and we still don't know who patient zero was. I'm afraid my neighbor's dog is barking. <laughs> <laughs> um, where are we talking to you from? I am in the Bay Area, and uh, our neighbor just got a new German Shepherd, rescue German Shepherd, just like Major Biden. And uh, apparently he doesn't like when I'm on the radio. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's all right. If, it, if it's like uh, Major Biden, I would steer clear, uh, considering <laughs> what's happened at the White House. Uh, 
Canada wasn't hit during the Russian attack on Ukraine back in 2017. And I don't think Canadians in many ways really understand uh, what happened during that attack on Ukraine, which did also uh, infect Australia, Australia, uh, France, for example, uh, the United States. Can you tell me more about what happened uh, in Ukraine in 2017? And, and is that an indication of what might be coming? Yeah, thanks for asking that, because I think it is it is the, the attack you're describing is the costliest, most destructive cyber attack in world history. It was an attack Russia launched on Ukraine in 2017 using actually some of the National Security Agency's own stolen hacking tools. Someone named the shadow brokers has stolen them. I don't know who the shadow brokers are. But they dumped them online, and first North Korea and then Russia picked them up and used them for their own attacks. And the attack Russia launched on Ukraine that month didn't just hit Ukraine. It hit any company or organization that had even a single employee working remotely from Ukraine. So it boomeranged around the world. It hit Cadbury egg chocolate factories in Tasmania, froze their production lines on their factory floors. It hit Pfizer. It hit Merck. Merck actually had to tap into the Centers for Disease Control's emergency stockpiles of vaccines that year. Their production lines were frozen up in that attack. So it was a hugely damaging attack um, and made it even more severe because it used stolen NSA weapons. But for whatever reason, it really didn't capture the American consciousness in the same way that the Snowden leaks did uh, capture the global audience. And so I, I asked why, and I think the answer was that there wasn't a human face on that attack. A lot of the victims went to great lengths to sort of hide the damage from that attack. Um, we still don't know who the shadow brokers are. The NSA and U.S. officials would say nothing about the fact that their tools were actually used as catalysts for that attack. So in the end, that's why I wrote this book, um, to really put a human, human face, a human story on that attack. Because what Ukrainians told me when I went there a couple of years after that attack, they were still picking up for me. And they said, listen, when we do forensics on this attack, what we see is that in many ways, this was Russia wiping clean our systems, perhaps to wipe any trace of what they had done before. And what they had done before was nonstop cyber attacks and hacks of Ukraine systems. And often Ukrainians would see them testing out one method here, another method there, almost as if they were deploying the scientific method of cyber attacks. And what Ukraine said to me was, listen, we don't think that we're the end target. We think we're spring training. We think we're the test kitchen for some future attack on the West. Only when it comes your way, it will be that much more damaging because, by the way, we're just not that wired like you are. Your entire digital economy has been wired up. You know, your federal agencies have software baked inside. Your grid has software baked inside. And so when this comes your way, it could be tremendously destructive in a way that we haven't seen here. Well, your book is absolutely keeping me up at night. Um, so thanks. Uh, <laughs> because what you write about is that, that all governments are sort of engaging in this, and we don't know what vulnerabilities already possibly exist in our infrastructure. 
I mean, how likely is a cyber Pearl Harbor or, or a cyber 9-11? Well, it's, it's totally plausible. Um, we have seen Russia turn off the lights in Ukraine in a series of attacks in 2015, 2016. They actually shut down the power. Um, we have seen ransomware hold up hospitals. We saw someone try to attempt to contaminate uh, the water supply in a small Florida town a few months ago using cyber means. All of these capabilities are already there. We've also seen Russia and other groups from Iran, for instance, get into our critical infrastructure, get into our power grid, our utility companies, our gas pipeline networks. And so a cyber Pearl Harbor, I, I hate the phrase because Pearl Harbor caught us by surprise, whereas a cyber-induced cataclysmic attack of that kind would not catch us by surprise. We've seen this coming for a long time. And the only reason I think it hasn't happened yet is we haven't seen the right geopolitical trigger for Russia to tell attackers, okay, now is the time, go. And by the way, you know, the U.S. hasn't just been sitting pretty about this. They've, they have been making their own entries into the Russian grid, which is a story my colleague David Singer and I reported a few years ago. That the U.S. Cyber Command has been making loud incursions into the Russian grid almost as a show of digitally mutually assured destruction. So there's that, too. There is a little bit deterrent of deterrence in the fact that should Russia pull the trigger here, we would just turn around and do the same there. Um, so what I worry about is sort of the in-between stuff. You know, these, the attack on the water treatment facility that contaminated the water, we still don't know who did it. Um, you know, an attack on uh, a utility that looks a lot like the situation we had in Texas this winter, where because of an underinvestment in winterizing, <laughs> the power went out for hundreds of thousands of people and ultimately contaminated the water supply. You know, things like that. Um, we've seen Russia sort of mask a lot of its attacks on these seemingly random targets. Um, we saw them attack the Olympic opening ceremonies in Seoul a few years ago. Obviously, the immediate suspect then was North Korea, and it was only later we found out it was Russia. We saw them take a French television station off the air and claim uh, they were ISIS, when in fact a few months later we learned it was the same Russian hackers who take an aim at the Olympic ceremony. So why are they going after these random targets pretending to be someone else? I think it comes back to the same argument the Ukrainians were making, which is they're practicing methods and also messing around with attribution. Can they pull something off and shift the blame to someone else, I think is what is happening here. Nicole Pearl-Roth, uh, her new book is This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends. I'm just... I'm just wondering, with all of your reporting, uh, are you tempted to just sell everything and move to the woods and live in a cabin off the grid? <laughs> I do have a cabin in the woods, <laughs> and I don't have Nest enabled there or Alexa or Google Home, and I barely have Internet. Um, but, you know, what I, I've realized is it's impossible to get off the grid these days. You know, your car tracks your location. You're, you still have a phone. You still order things on Amazon, which ties you back to your address and your phone number. Um, you know, so even if you're living in a cabin off the woods, you really have to be a hermit <laughs> to be untraceable um, and not a victim of a cyber attack these days. So 
it's really hard. So I just do the best I can. You know, I, I think everyone needs to not be paranoid that they're a target for Russian intelligence, but to think about what is it that someone could, could use against you. And for me, that's my source. You know, my sources are really my crown jewels. So I go to extreme lengths to protect my sources. I have sources that I'll meet where I only meet them by foot or someone else has to give me a ride. I don't take my car or my phone. Probably not my computer. Um, and we meet at the same place at the same time every month, or at least we did before the pandemic. You know, those are, and I bring pen and paper. Those are the steps I take to protect sensitive sources. But not everyone has to do that. So I think if everyone just took basic steps, like use different passwords, turn on multi-factor authentication, don't click on stupid links and attachments, you would knock out about 80% of the threats we face. It wouldn't stop. Russian intelligence, but most of us are not targets of Russian intelligence, unfortunately. Right? <laughs> Only in my mind am I that important. Nicole. We help. Right, we help. <laughs> Nicole, thank you so much. Please take care. Okay, thank you so much, John. Have a great one. That is Nicole Perlroth, who is a reporter with the New York Times, and her new book, This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends, is out now. And it is a gripping, gripping read. Thanks to Nicole for joining us.